Cuando desempaques tus regalos Niño de lujosa vecindad Piensa en tantos niños que no saben Para qué es la Navidad Piensa en el chavalo limpiabotas Que su noche buena pasará En una banqueta dura y fría del atrio de catedral Feliz Navidad Feliz Navidad en justicia y libertad Feliz Navidad un mundo mejor sin miseria ni opresión Feliz Welcome to The Magnificat, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I'm your empty advent calendar, because Christmas is, o- is, is over. And I'm Matt Bernico. The uh, gifts that you're taking back to the store. <laughs> <laughs> Dean, what did you get for Christmas? What, what's the big Christmas gift that you got? I got some very cool books of poetry from... Emily, my partner, because I decided 2020 is the year that I'm going to learn about poetry for real. And she, being a very thoughtful person, went to a poetry store and she went inside the store and said, I don't, I don't know anything about poetry, but my husband is a communist. And what can you do for me? And uh, they said, you should get these two books. So now I have on that recommendation, two poetry books that I'm looking forward to read. To that, is, that is very funny. <laughs> I know. It's very funny and extremely sweet. Um, yeah. What about you? Uh, what was the big Christmas gift for you in 2019? Uh, my wife got me, uh, the Zelda game. Nice. (laughs) I decided this is the year I'm going to learn. I'm going to do Zelda again. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Not, uh, quite as high minded as poetry, but, um, Folks in media studies all agree. Uh, nine out of ten doctors of media studies agree that games are <laughs> literature. So think about that. That's what they should start putting on uh, game boxes. Nine out of ten doctors of media studies agree. Game makers, I'm here to give my approval to your games. If you need this kind of reference, I can give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. I also came back with this really good uh, illness that I'm bringing into 2020. So my brain is a little soupy. Um, if you can't tell that already. <laughs> One final programming note here. Uh, you may remember for uh, the past two semesters in 2019, I taught some online classes through the Institute for Christian Studies, and I'm doing another one uh, this semester, I hope, if I get enough people to sign up for it. Um, it starts the second week of, of January, so if you're listening to this, uh, you know, the day the episode comes out, you do still have time to register. They are accepting registrations uh, into that first week of the class, but act now. Don't wait. Uh, it's very important. The class is on Christianity and prison abolition. Uh, it costs $130 U.S. for the entire class, so that, that covers all the classes. Um, and that it might be kind of a big chunk of change at first, but I promise you it's actually very cheap over time. It works out to being like $10 a class because it's 13 classes. Uh, if you want to know more about it, you can find a lot of info on my Twitter or at the Institute for Christian Studies website, which is icscanada.edu. The syllabus is posted there, and uh, you can get a better idea of what we'll be reading. But it's all online. There's a couple hours of discussion each week, and it's been really great so far. And we've had some podcast listeners who've joined in, too, which has been really nice and fun. There's no prerequisites. You just have to want to be there really bad. 
so I hope to see you all there. We do have one final Christmas episode because I did say that Christmas is over, but technically it's not. Uh, the liturgy says it's still going, and look, this podcast also says it's still going. Uh, and we had this this great conversation with Robert May. He's an emeritus professor of history at Purdue University, and he wrote a book called Yuletide and Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory, and it just came out in 2019. It's pretty fresh, and we, as we were putting together all our Christmas episodes, we thought we've got to get this one in um, at the end. Uh, so I think it was really great. It was a really fascinating book. Um, it is kind of challenging to listen to, I should say, in certain parts because the episode is about and the book is about uh, slavery in uh, Christmas time in the context of slavery, and so there's, you know, lots of content uh, related to life in that time and the torture of black slaves and black people and all that kind of thing. So be advised, I guess, about that. Um, but it is really great work and great research. All right. Well, let's go to the interview. Uh, so this week on the show, we have Professor Robert May, uh, the author of Yuletide and Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. Um, so thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it a lot. Um, you, you have a really cool book, cool. and we're excited to talk about it. Glad um, to be here. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so whenever we have authors on the show, we ask them to just give a just a general like elevator pitch of their project just to, you know, contextualize what's happening here for everyone listening. So could you give us a pitch for Yuletide and Dixie? Yes, I'd be glad to do that. Um, my uh, I, th I think the project uh, has has the most value to readers in that it, it first of all exposes how important the Christmas experience was to both slaves and masters alike. Uh, and to the southern region as a whole. But then secondarily, it, it uh, tends to deconstruct all the romantic myths that have accrued to that holiday in the South. We tend to, there, there are pictures, there are stories, there are news accounts and so on that Im imply that Christmas was sort of southern paternalism at its height, the, the time of the year when masters were especially humane towards their slaves, gave them gifts, gave them long holidays, uh, gave them big parties, um, and, and so on. And that uh, it, it sort of proves that the masters deep down really had affection for their slaves, and the slaves in turn greatly appreciated these gifts from their masters. After all, they were voluntary. They didn't have to get all these gifts. They could have been kept working over the holiday. And the masters, therefore, or the slaves, therefore, were very appreciative and uh, responsive. And that the whole thing sort of showed the South as an organic, united community with the, the slaves working for the masters fairly happily. And, and it may seem strange in modern times that this kind of a myth could have ever existed or that it still has some staying power in it. In America, after all, this is the period where we're seeing movies like Django Unchained and uh, 12 Years a Slave and the new uh, movie Harriet and so on. And uh, they hardly romanticize slave, slave times. But uh, I would argue, and I, I believe the book proves that this romanticizing of, of slave Christmases is a current that goes straight through our history from the pre-Civil War years when Southerners were trying to justify slavery uh, to uh, uh, offset abolitionism uh, right up until modern times. And in fact, what I would contend is that these images that, 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 Chris, that, that slavery was a humane uh, form of labor and that Southern slavery wasn't all that bad, that it was a tolerable labor system, 
that these inform all the modern debates over uh, Confederate memory, Confederate flag, Confederate monuments. If we thought slavery was horrific, we would have a lot of trouble justifying these kinds of mementos on our landscape. Thanks so much. That's a really helpful way in, and it helps, too, to connect kind of the history that you're doing here with contemporary things in the public discourse and and politics and all the kind of stuff that we're interested in on this show, too. Um, Maybe just to put one question on the table to get us in, um, in the introduction to the book, you mentioned that Christmas wasn't really celebrated in the same way across the United States in the 19th century. Some states uh, suspended work on Christmas, for instance, and other ones didn't. You know, it's not a a real kind of homogenized holiday yet. Um, And Christmas for us now is is almost like a national myth or a public holiday that kind of makes it hard to get a handle on what Christmas was like in that historical period that you're describing. So because you said earlier that it's a, um, you know, a really important part of uh, of societies uh, back then, Southern societies in particular, um, could you maybe explain a little bit what Christmas was like and uh, why you see this as such a, a pivotal holiday to investigate uh, for these purposes? Well, uh, first of all, I, I think uh you, you have to realize that Christmas wasn't widely practiced in America anywhere, probably, certainly not the, the way we celebrate it today. Uh, in, for most of the colonial period, uh, settlement was very dispersed in America as compared to much of Europe. And, um, and then on top of that, you had religious qualms. Uh, the, uh, the, the Puritans who settled New England, for instance, uh, were Calvinist, and they... They followed the Puritans of England who had tried to ban the holiday, and uh, Quakers were anti-Christmas. And uh, so so you have a tremendous diversity of, of faith in America in the colonial period, widespread settlement. Uh, I have found some indications that Christmas was observed, for instance, in, uh, in Virginia in the 1700s, it's not easy finding many allusions to Christmas being celebrated in the other southern colonies in the 1700s, even though they were far less hostile to Christmas than New, New England was, because uh, the southern colonies were not settled by Calvinistic Puritans. And, um, and in the 1600s, it's, it's very hard to find real accounts of Christmas the way we think of it today anywhere in the in the colonies uh, and and so uh, you have this tremendous diversity and then by the revolution you have a, a little bit of talk by that period of, of santa claus and things like that but um it's really not until the 1800s uh, the decades before the civil war that christmas really stabilizes throughout the country and it becomes a, a little more uniform in the sense that uh, New England sheds its Puritanism. So what you have is residues in areas that were settled by uh, New Englanders uh, that uh, perhaps people still work on Christmas and things like that. But the holiday is getting more uniform throughout the, uh, the, the country, and some scholars have argued that it was one of the few things that could bind such a diverse society together, that it served a, a very public function uh, even before the Civil War in, in, in binding America together, much like July 4th binds the country together. And, um, and, and so the, the South itself 
uh, I think always uh, celebrate Christmas with a little more fervency than certainly New England. Uh, but we have to remember it was the uh, middle states on the Atlantic coast, places like Pennsylvania, New York, that gave us uh, many of our uh, Christmas customs that we observe today, Christmas trees, uh, the uh, the night before Christmas and Santa Claus and all that stuff. We, we tend to associate with New York and Clement Clark, Clark Moore. And, uh, and, and so, um, uh, but, but nonetheless, what, what I would argue is that Christmas probably had more meaning and was observed more fully in the South, especially as it got more settled. And that Southerners were conscious that they gave Christmas much more attention than elsewhere in the country. And that in the Civil War, uh, Southerners actually pointed to their uh, fervent celebrations and observances of Christmas as evidence that in a sense, they were better Christians than Yankees, and uh, that they uh, they deserved their independence partly because of mm. these regional distinctions. Hmm. Well, I hope of, that helps. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of the South uh, and Christmas after the Civil War, um, you mentioned that Christmas had a propagandist kind of function uh, during that period. Um, you know, Southerners would tell stories about Christmas as a nostalgic time of peace and goodwill, uh, peace and goodwill, even though, or even towards slaves. Um, so what were some of those propagandist tropes and what was the truth about Christmas in the antebellum U.S.? Right. Okay. So uh, the, the tropes about Christmas and uh, kindly treatment of slaves and how the kindly treatment of slaves um, over Christmas is some of the best proof that slavery was a humane system of labor and all that. The roots of that are actually before the Civil War because Southern regional propaganda began before the Civil War, especially as the region came under abolitionist attack around the year 1830 was, was when the abolition movement really gets going. And so you had justifications uh, of, uh, of slave Christmases and slavery itself, of course, um, by, by, uh, they were becoming very frequent by the 1830s. And, and so for instance, in the book, I quote at length from a William Grayson's, uh, epic poem, the hireling and the slave. It was a, uh, a long poem of over 50 pages that tried to justify slavery and it justified slavery from all sorts of angles. Uh, but one of them was that at, at Christmas, the slave was joyful and the master threw a big feast with a lot of pork and um, the, the slaves got wonderful presents, especially warm clothing and, and so on. Of course, the, uh, uh, the poem didn't point out for readers that the slaves needed these warm clothing if they were going needed the warm clothing if they were going to stay healthy and labor for the master. So um, what I'm getting at is this kind of propaganda appeared in uh, Southern literature and stories. Uh, you can read uh, William Gilmore Sims's stories. He was the most famous Southern novelist before the Civil War, and he's giving uh, idyllic pictures of uh, 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 Christmas pastorals, you might say, in the, in the Old South. Uh, and... Um, uh, newspapers and magazines had some of this stuff, but 
compared to what happened after the Civil War, uh, the pre-Civil War Christmas propaganda was pretty mild. Uh, it was after the South lost the Civil War that you see a, a tremendous desire among the Southern people, first of all, to get their rights back to, to uh, Southern white people to get the vote back. Uh, they're very upset that form, their former slaves are now holding office under Reconstruction. Uh, they don't like the way their world's been turned upside down. For, for years, you have uh, Yankee occupation troops, some of whom were African-American, uh, stationed in the South uh, right after the Civil War. Uh, and and uh, resenting all this, uh, they, they want to, uh, Southern authors want to justify their way of life. They also want to create a rationale for um, uh, basically white rule again in the South. And uh, interestingly, Southern women were very active in this because Southern men had to be careful what they said after the Civil War. They, uh, the North was gradually pulling back on Reconstruction. They didn't want to give Northerners an excuse to send the troops back in. And um, so Southern women often uh, wrote this stuff, but, but hardly exclusively Southern women. And they churned out <laughs> a lot scores of, of novels and short stories and memoirs justifying slavery and uh, using Christmas sometimes in full full chapters to show how humane their system of labor was before the Civil War, which uh, gives you an excuse, of course, to leave the Union when the labor system comes under attack from Lincoln and the Republicans, fight, fight a civil war, which caused, uh, at the time, I don't know if they were throwing any figures around, but... Uh, uh, we came to accept, uh, you know, well over 600,000. Now, today, we, we believe it's over 700,000 deaths. You're, you're justifying all that killing and carnage, uh, bloodshed and so on. Uh, and um, you have, uh, uh, so you have all these writings coming out, starting really during Reconstruction, but really picking up speed uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, when there's no longer a fear of much pushback from the North and when Southerners now are really uh, trying to justify their whole way of life and, of course, eventually segregation. And so um, you, uh, you get a tremendous amount of stuff from some of the leading authors in the South, like Thomas Nelson Page, whose books were at one point more widely read, his novels were more widely read, uh, in, in U.S. colleges, for instance, than any other author for a while. And, uh, but also by former politicians, by the descendants of former politicians, by Confederate officers like John B. Gordon, uh, by uh, uh, members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, and uh, officers of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which is very significant because that's an organization that has played uh, an essential role in Confederate memory right up to the present. And uh, they've been involved in the whole Silent Sam statue business uh, at, at, at the University of North Carolina. And um, uh, so you have uh, a, a lot of stuff coming out and it's appearing in newspapers. You have short story authors 
some of them uh, almost made a profession out of turning out Christmas stories with endearing tales of one-time slaves reuniting with their former masters happily over Christmas, exchanging gifts and that kind of thing. Um, pictures in magazines showing uh, former masters giving Christmas presents to slaves, even in freedom, that kind of thing. And um, you have a, a real effort to shape cultural understandings of the Southern past using Christmas as a vehicle to get that message across with all sorts of implications, I believe, for modern race relations. Yeah, thanks. I mean, we'll definitely get to that part of it, too, uh, toward the end. Um, I want to get also to maybe how uh, the counter narratives that are told in, in narratives uh, by slaves and former slaves maybe problematize this a little bit, too, in just a moment. Um, and I know it's it's somewhat difficult to, like, sort all this stuff out because it is such challenging <laughs> material to hear about <laughs> and read about, I have to say. Um, but if I could ask you to say just a little bit more to kind of um, help readers understand, too, why the book is so valuable. Uh, your approach to Christmas is interesting because while you say that you find a lot of, of material in the narratives of slaves and former slaves, you also say that um, you found that the most damning sources about master behavior at Christmas time, ironically, are the surviving letters, plantation journals, and diaries of slave owners themselves. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about the, the propaganda creating Christmas as this idyllic picture of, of life um, under slavery. But uh, yeah, what, what do you mean when you kind of talk about these other sources that you were investigating? Um, what did those reveal to you? Right. Okay. Well, let me just for the benefit of uh, your your uh, uh, readers and um, uh, others who might uh, tap into this, uh, let me just uh, say say briefly that the book is divided into three sections. There's a section on what slave Christmases were actually like both during uh, antebellum times and during the Civil War. Then the second section is about how slave Christmases were justified in literature that was not only written by white Southerners, but even by many white Northerners and even a few African-Americans uh, like Booker T. Washington uh, after the Civil War and then uh, and, and right up until about the year 1930 or so. And then the, the final section is a, a short section on Christmas plantation and mansion tours today and what they tell us about how these myths have seeped into our culture. So with that said, for the section on what slavery was, uh, what Christmas slave experiences were actually like, which is by far the longest section in the book, uh, all historians go out looking for sources. And there are obvious sources. There are, of course, many newspaper accounts. There are travelers who passed through the Old South and wrote their impressions of slave Christmases and things like that. They use all sorts of sources for the book, but uh, the, the, the two most obvious sources where you're, you're getting the, the straightest story, presumably, are from the former slaves themselves. Uh, and at one time, we didn't realize just how many sources they left because not much attention was given to them during the heyday of segregation. 
But uh, a lot of escaped slaves wrote narratives that were actually published both before and after the Civil War about their experiences as slaves. They amounted to autobiographies. And then in addition, in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, the New Deal employed a lot of writers who were jobless to go out and interview um, uh, many, many slaves, uh, one-time slaves who were still alive. And these uh, enslaved people gave their impressions of their experiences and what they knew about the institution on other places from what they told these interviewers. Uh, and, and, and of course, there are some other scattered African-American sources. There's, there's folklore, there's, uh, there, there's songs, uh, things like that. Uh, but uh, so there are African-American sources. And then uh, there are also plenty of sources, as I say in the book, straight from the horse's mouth. That is to say, these are sources by uh, people who own slaves. Uh, they kept diaries. They kept plantation journals. They wrote many letters. The pre-Civil War South had a, a lousy public education system, but its slave owners were very wealthy, and they sought education for their children. And so the slave-owning class was highly literate, especially the large planters, less so the small farmers. Uh, and uh, so we have voluminous correspondence that's been preserved uh, at archives, and a lot of it's been published, and then some, many of them kept diaries on, on top of all this. So uh, you can get their impressions and what you would expect, uh, and what I probably thought I'd find when I first got into this was that uh, masters would have very good uh, self-images and just talk about how wonderful they were to their slaves. But uh, these, these these diaries and letters were very honest, and uh, they were accounts, sometimes inadvertent, of what was going on on a daily basis that often put the masters in, in a horrible light, even on Christmas. And and so you might have an, a master angry that his slaves aren't uh, picking enough cotton, and he might write in his journal that they've been whipped, or that he's denied them Christmas presents. Uh, and uh, I, I found that this was a very common sort of thing, that, that you would read these, um, uh, these accounts by the slave owners themselves, and they gave away the game, so to speak. They, uh, you can use these accounts to question and undercut almost every one of the tropes about wonderful slave Christmases that have been put out there in the writings that um, were authored by Southerners after the Civil War. Do you think that's, like, why would they write about themselves like that? Do you think it's just because they thought, you know, no one would read their diaries, or is there something else going on? No, I, 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 no I, I don't think that's it at all. I think you have to realize that to a good degree, they've brainwashed themselves into believing that they have the right to own uh, own human beings. And they don't feel, in many cases, that uh, they're doing something immoral. They feel that uh, they have the right to withhold Christmas privileges, 
and Christmas gifts and things like that if they feel like it. And uh, I, I think they're just uh, uh, honestly trying to give accounts of what they do in the daytime. So you get these chilling incidents, like you get a, uh, a master with, and, and certainly they felt that they had a legal right. Southern society gave them a legal right in court to uphold uh, of slave owning. So when a slave escapes and uh, seeks his, his or her freedom, uh, and gets recaptured, why not, as uh, a Louisiana planter did, uh, simply write in your diary, well, to punish him, to give an example to the other slaves, let's put him in the scaffold in the slave quarter so that everyone can see him on Christmas. And um, you can do that kind of thing because you feel it's your uh, right to mm. own people, which we, of course, find abhorrent today. And uh, at least that's that's my interpretation. I, I I don't think these diaries were written as public documents. They didn't realize that they'd be of great interest to historians and publishers, and that many of them would get uh, printed in book form. I'm, I doubt that many of these diaries were written with that intention, but uh, I, th I think they were uh, uh, self self records, like we preserve photo photographs of our our lives, sometimes even embarrassing photos. Uh, mm. We, uh, I, I think they were preserving, uh, it, it was part of preserving their, uh, their, their lives and, uh, their beliefs and their values. Yeah. That's a really helpful elaboration that definitely helps me make more sense of the, the journals and like the, the slave masters part. Huh? Well, let's, let's stick to the, or let's switch to the other side then maybe. Um, you mentioned there's also lots of accounts coming from uh, slaves and other African-Americans at the time. Uh, one that sticks out in the very introduction of your book is from Frederick Douglass um, about the way slave masters would use Christmas as a way for slaves to blow off steam and aggression, sort of like a, a you know, a release valve. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, that side of the story? Right. So why did slaveholders throw these Christmas bashes in the first place. What What is the purpose of uh, giving, as were often done on the larger plantations, huge barbecues and, and feasts with uh, apparently a lot of meat, and most of the year, a lot of slaves, plantation slaves, never got meat at all, um, but uh, cattle and, and hogs were slaughtered for Christmas. Their accounts of slaves getting venison and uh, duck and stuff like that, all sorts of fancy pudding. So they get these huge feasts. Uh, they, they get to dance uh, sometimes in, uh, in the quarters, sometimes in parts of the uh, uh, servants' uh, facilities, the mansion. Uh, but they, they get huge dances. They're allowed to visit each other and even if uh, their friends and relatives lived on other plantations, they're given written passes so they can go off the plantation, sometimes traveling quite a few miles to see their friends and relations. Uh, they're allowed, in, in many cases, to go into the nearest town or city to, bl to blow off steam and, and so on. So there's all this partying, and there's even this curious game that I give uh, quite a bit of a chapter to called Christmas Gift, in which the uh, the slaves can easily beat the master at a, at a game on Christmas morning and, and, 
and win a prize that the master has to give them, a Christmas gift, and so on. So why why all these different uh, ways for slaves to celebrate and uh, uh, enjoy the Christmas season when, of course, legally speaking, the master could make uh, the slave work, uh, and there's always work to do around a plantation, even if even if it's uh, even if there's no tending of the crops to be done. So, uh, what what I would argue strongly, and what Frederick Douglass's comment and the comments of other slaves gets at very get at very nicely in the, in their narratives, especially, is that uh, it was a distraction. Um, if 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 Conditions are horrific and unmitigated horror throughout the year, 365 days a year. There's far more chance of a blow up and perhaps a slave rebellion or other other forms of resistance, murdering a master or an overseer or um, work stoppages and so on. There's, There's far more chance of that kind of thing than if you throw the workers some crumbs, so to speak. You give them presents that you can afford. Uh, A lot of the presents that were given were secondhand. Uh, These are very wealthy people, uh, and they can afford to throw big big bashes uh, over the Christmas season, a a big feast or or whatever. It's, uh, um, if you read the the recent literature on slavery in the South, uh, the emphasis uh, is, has been for quite a few years now that slavery was highly profitable and was especially profitable for the wealthy slave owners who owned a lot of land, maybe multiple plantations, scores of slaves, and so on. And and it was a capitalistic enterprise, and uh, they made a lot of money. They were the richest people in America. There was more money made off southern plantations than northern railroads or industry. And they could afford this stuff. And so you throw a big party, the slaves get drunk, which was the complaint of some of them. The masters even uh, force them to get drunk in some cases. Uh, how are you going to uh, resist slavery if you're inebriated? How are you going to run away in the middle of the winter if you're inebriated? Keep them stewed. Keep them uh, absorbed with their courting. Their- their feasts, their presents, and so on, uh, and uh, let them win a, a little bit of a victory over Christmas. It's their day. Let them lounge around if they want. The thinking was, uh, let them uh, dance and court and uh, blow off steam, do a lot of drinking, and uh, they're not going to think about resisting slavery over Christmas. And I think it was very important, in fact, to distract slaves over Christmas because the master's guard was down over Christmas. He was celebrating. These were times on the larger slaveholding places for uh, a lot of visiting from relations and friends and neighbors. And uh, the bashes weren't just for slaves. There were big bashes for the white people who lived in and around these, these mansions. And, uh, the uh, the white population is going to be absorbed with its own partying. It's hard to keep a close watch on your slaves when you yourself are, are drinking and feasting and opening presents and gathering around Christmas trees and so on and so forth. 
And so um, it was really in their best interest institutionally in terms of preserving slavery and uh, um, trying to avoid slave rebellions to allow um, slaves to get some uh, get some of that energy uh, blown off the uh, the idea of a uh, you know a safety valve uh, you 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 let some of the steam on the pot escape so the the pot doesn't explode and I think it's a common principle with uh, employers and laborers throughout history and to some degree, it worked in the South. Uh, over Christmas, as, as my book points out, there were slaves who used the holidays cover to run away. But on the other hand, there never was uh, a single major Christmas rebellion uh, during slave times. Uh, as we'll probably talk about in a minute or two, there were many rumored slave rebellions at Christmas, which are the other side of the story. But there was never an actual uh, Christmas slave rebellion in the United States. And I want to emphasize that because there were Christmas rebellions in other parts uh, of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, yeah, well, I do want to ask you a little bit more about that question in particular. Um, and you, you've kind of addressed it in, in a lot of roundabout ways already, so maybe you don't have to worry too much about it. But um just to kind of hear you talk a little bit more, I think would be really interesting about the rumors of a, a Christmas rebellion, Christmas insurrection that persisted even after the Civil War. You know, why would Christmas provide that special occasion for heightened fears about slave revolts? What were maybe some of the other Christmas revolts people were afraid of? Um, and you mentioned, too, in the book that right after the Civil War, there was, uh, in some cases, a perception that, um, you know, this is the moment that the Christmas rebellion will happen finally because uh, things have changed. Um, so, yeah, maybe just talk a little bit more about that phenomenon. You're absolutely right. Okay, so we have to realize that throughout the slave societies of the Western Hemisphere, um, there, there was a tendency at, at Christmas to give slaves more freedom than they had at any other time of the year. Uh, they're going to get a vacation. It might be two days. It might be three days. It, it could be longer. Uh, but they're going to get a vacation. A vacation means downtime. When they can gather together, they could conceivably plot. And uh, by the same token, it's hard to keep up uh, police and uh, uh, other uh, guard-type functions. Uh, the overseers have to party on the plantations, too. Uh, and uh, it's hard to keep a close watch on the slaves at Christmas time. And so many of the uh, worst slave rebellions in the, in, in the Western Hemisphere actually occurred over Christmas. And so you have that history as a backdrop. And uh, in the United States, Although there were no major uh, Christmas rebellions uh, in, in the South after the American Revolution, there were always the fears of them for the very reasons that I just mentioned. And panics would sweep the South uh, year after year, sometimes the entire South, sometimes just regions in the South or a, a single state or a single city. But the point is, it's, it's, it's rather shocking 
how many such slave rebellion panics occurred in the South between uh, about the year 1800 and the Civil War. So they're occurring with some frequency, and it doesn't take much to set them off because deep down, and, 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 and this gets to the kind of complexities about slavery that your question's asking, uh, and uh, that you, you seem to be very sensitive to, that, uh, that on the one hand, uh, you have a society in which the propaganda is throwing out the idea that slaves are content with bondage, and insofar as Christmas is concerned, that they appreciate all the gifts and privileges with humility and grace, and uh, uh, they display fawning gratitude for their presence when they're given them, and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, you have very humble slaves appreciating what their masters give them. But on the other hand, let's think about this realistically. Uh, If you own people in legal bondage, you still must see signs daily that slaves don't appreciate their condition, that they resent it, that they hate hate bondage. Uh, and uh, they're going to give evidence of this from time to time. Plus, no white man in the, or woman in the South ever asked to be a slave. They know deep down that there's something wrong and immoral here. And um, you put that all together, and and so they've got divided personalities. On the one hand, they they want to think that they're good masters and mistresses, and that slavery's a uh, just system of labor, and that they that in return for the labor they treat their slaves well, they they provide for them. Uh, well, they give them medical care, they give them decent food and clothing and all that. That's what they want to think. But on the other hand, slaves are being whipped. Uh, they're, they're being raped. Uh, they're being uh, abused in all sorts of, of ways. They're not always given decent medical care, uh, even for those times. Uh, they're not always given decent clothing. They're sent out to work in gruesome swamps. Uh, mosquito-ridden swamps. Uh, they they they're sent out in inadequate clothing in in cold weather. Uh, slaves catch pneumonia and so on. So to assume that the slave-owning class was so dense that they never had any inkling at all that what they were doing was inhumane uh, and uh, immoral. Uh, they're going to have um they're going to have inklings of it even if they never achieve a full realization of their own horrors i mean mary chestnut in her diary complained that everyone knew about uh men on the plantations who fathered uh, all the uh, all, all the slave children the, the mulatto children on the place except their own or something she made a comment uh, to that extent. So they're, they're aware that all these awful things are going on. And, um, and, and so to think that there was no potential for slave rebellion would be ridiculous. Uh, they would have had to have been tremendously obtuse 
not to realize that there was always a danger of slave rebellion, especially since such rebellions occurred at various times of the year all over the hemisphere, but certainly uh, had tended to occur at Christmas uh, in a disproportionate sense. And so they take precautions whenever they hear a, a rumor. All, all you have to do is hear that someone, that a slave on, on a certain place has been talking about a Christmas rising uh, or maybe find a gun uh, in a slave cabin or something like that. And you can assume the, the whole slave population is going to be rising up. And uh, they, uh, they were horribly re- repressive when these kinds of events occurred, there was sort of the equivalent of Tiananmen Square or something like that. And in modern terms, they uh, they would send out patrols. They would send out uh, parties of armed men to invade slave cabins, uh, apprehend enslaved people they suspected of rebellion, uh, often execute them after forced confess- confessions. And there were large numbers of of deaths and other punishments uh, for slaves for Christmas rebellions that never occurred and probably never would have occurred. Uh, It was very hard to rebel in the Old South, Uh, unlike uh, a lot of Latin America where blacks outnumbered whites. And in most of the South, whites outnumbered blacks. They controlled all the the, uh, militias. They controlled... uh, the uh, the various um, military forces in the country. I mean, after all, the U.S. government sent out the, ra- the the Marines to put down John Brown's raid on Harpers Ferry. Um, so uh, you've got uh, very little chance of a successful rebellion. But the thought that a slave might slit your throat in the middle of the night was enough to cause waves of repression throughout the South, and these waves occurred intermittently uh, right up to the Civil War, and they especially tended to occur uh, during times when the South felt politically challenged, as in 1856, when the Republican Party, which was the first major anti-slavery party in American history, nominated uh, its first presidential candidate, and that was one of the years when panic got worse. Uh, when you think you're under abolition attack, uh, you tend to overreact. And so we can look back on Civil War times today and think that uh, Lincoln had never threatened to abolish slavery himself. And uh, the Republican Party only opposed slavery's expansion into the West and into Latin America, that they really weren't an abolition party per se, but to Southerners, uh, the thought that they that this party that opposed slavery uh, might elect a president of the United States who would get the power of the army, the power to appoint Supreme Court justice, and so on. Um, this was enough to stir a tremendous panic in 1856. So you had panics at 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 times of in Christmas panics at seasons of of political insecurity. And these panics continued, as I show in my Civil War chapter, straight through the Civil War. And then, of course, uh, the Christmas after the Civil War, in the in the mindset of most white Southerners, uh, they are still slave owners. 
Now, slavery was legally abolished by the adoption of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution in uh, in December of 1865, and many uh, enslaved people had gotten their freedom earlier because of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and uh, flight to the Union Army lines. But the, the fact is that even though slavery was legally dead, uh, it takes a while for any ingrained perspective to dissipate. And that was the case, I think, with white Southerners. Uh, the war had ended about three quarters of a year earlier. In parts of the South, it only ended really about a half a year earlier. They are still in their own minds slaveholders, and some of them try to keep their slaves for as long as they can. There were cases in the South where slaveholders didn't inform their slaves of their own freedom until well after the fighting ended in the Civil War. So in their own mindset, they're still slaveholders. And yet, you now have Yankee troops in the South, and thousands of them are, are black soldiers who were uh, enrolled in the Union Army during the Civil War, many of them former slaves in the U.S. colored regiments. And they're stationed in the South in the winter of 1865 to 1866. And so uh, maybe they're going to... Uh, help blacks uh, have the, the, the long-expected Christmas uprising. And what really complicated the thing was that rumors got out in the South that were rational in many ways that the federal government tended to give ex-slaves uh, ex the lands of their former masters. Uh, there had been land confiscations, and that's a complicated question that we can get into, but there had been some land confiscations during the Civil War from masters on various grounds, uh, such as that they had failed to pay certain taxes. And uh, lands had been distributed uh, to, to uh, uh, formerly enslaved people in, in places like Davis Bend in Mississippi, which was where Jefferson Davis and his brother Joseph had their plantations and then uh, at Port Royal Sound in South Carolina. And so you had these uh, land distributions already during the Civil War. Uh, you had uh, the, uh, the, the William Tecumseh Sherman uh, land grants during his campaign in, in Georgia and the Carolinas. And you have all this, and many thousands of, of African-Americans in the South genuinely expected a great land bonanza come Christmas of 1865, the first Christmas after the war. This would be their great Christmas present, greatest Christmas present ever. And uh, this uh, land bonus was not coming. There was no such, uh, there was talk of a land uh, bonus in in Congress, and there were bills to introduce, and, and there was certainly a lot of discussion of it, but it wasn't coming, and the president, the new president after Lincoln's assassination, as Vice President Andrew Johnson, was determined to give white Southerners their land back. He was a white Southerner himself, and so the fear, the great fear in, among white Southerners as Christmas approached in 1865 was that when African-Americans learned that there would be no land bonanza, their pent-up frustration would boil over. And these people who they, who many Southern whites still viewed virtually as their slaves would rise up 
in a grand in the, in the grand long awaited uh slave christmas rebellion wow that is really interesting <laughs> I, that's part of the story i've definitely never heard before but that uh helps contextualize some of the uh fear of slave revolts um well with that land and kind of going along with that um your the last part of your book turns towards um a, a kind of an interesting uh chapter on tourism and the the last lasting effect of of like um slavery and christmas on public memory um and how some of these history tours work to sanitize the past so um turning toward that that last chapter in your book how does christmas cover over the truth about what happened and um does that process tie into the nostalgia and consumerism we associate with christmas today or or what's going on with those those history tours and how they make us uh you know, think about Christmas now. Okay, well, if you, uh, it might surprise a lot of people to know that there are literally hundreds, uh, many hundreds of uh, sites in the South that build themselves either as uh, southern plantation, uh, historic southern plantation or mansion sites. Uh, that is to say, they are not just sites on big southern estates, but they're sites that have some historical linkages to usually the pre-Civil War colonial period, and that many of these sites have Christmas programming, partly for educational purposes, because some of them are museums, and you want to get uh, tourists in, and tourists have time at Christmas to visit because they're on vacation, and so on and so forth. So it's partly for educational purposes, but uh, many of these Christmas programs, which include tours uh, especially candlelight tours, uh, reenactments, uh, big fancy meals in some cases, uh, holiday, big fancy holiday meals, uh, that many of these uh, events at these places are definitely fundraising events. And if you throw a fundraising event where you may charge uh, $30, $40 for admission, maybe more, depends on what kind of food and how much food is served, usually, uh, you want people to have a good time. And the minute you introduce a contested topic to the event, like slavery, uh, a, uh, a topic fraught with all sorts of ra racial issues that we're still trying to work out in our society uh, about equality, reparations, and all sorts of things like that. Um, the minute you introduce those kinds of elements into a Christmas event that by custom is festive, we think of Christmas festivities, uh, the minute you, you introduce that kind of an element into it, you throw a damper on the event and there's a danger either that people will get angry and push back against the information, perhaps arguing with tour guides or site administrators, or perhaps they'll argue among themselves because they'll bring different perspectives to the tours. Um, and the minute you do that, you endanger the whole process and you may endanger your future um, income from these events, uh, your, your future operating income, it's very important uh, to the maintenance of these sites all year long. Uh, and, and so, uh, given these constraints, 
it's not surprising that typically for the many decades that these places have been putting on these kinds of Christmas programs, that typically slavery metaphorically was swept under the rug. It wasn't so much that they justified slavery as that they just uh, didn't talk about it or didn't mention it. And uh, this is problematic in all sorts of ways, because how do you promote these events? You promote them as celebrations. So you're an African-American, perhaps descended from a a pre-Civil War slave family, and you see an advertisement for one of these events, and it's called a celebration of plantation life uh, in the 1700s or the 1800s. And the word celebration itself has to be offensive uh, because it, it implies that plantations were good places, and there's no insinuation at all of the immorality attached to human bondage. And so you start with, with that problem, and then you get into the actual programs at these places, and uh, there, there simply was no effort to grope realistically with slavery's horrors and ruination of slave, of slave family life and uh, its economic impact on uh, uh, blacks as a whole, uh, the lack of education that slaves were given, they, they simply weren't educated, uh, which has all sorts of long-range consequences for later generations of African-Americans. I mean, you could go on forever about the long-range implications of these things, almost all of which are negative, and uh, you're, you're not addressing them. So in the old days, of course, uh, we, now have a, we now have a few uh, sites that are dedicated to African-American culture and history, as you know. Um, but in the old days, almost all these sites were operated by people with Southern white perspectives. Um, some of them were operated by people associated with the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And uh, they had a vested interest in basically obscuring the history of human bondage and they did so, and we're paying a significant price for this. Now, in recent years, given our growing racial sensitivity and awareness in this country, uh, you're having a reaction against this kind of programming, and uh, programming not just at Christmas, but all year round. And what I've found is that in the year-round programming and on the plantation websites, and we're talking here places literally all over the South and virtually every Southern state. Uh, some of the most famous of these places, of course, are in Virginia, like George Washington's Mount Vernon, but um, uh, they're, all, they're all over the South in cities and in rural areas. And uh, at these places, you now have a, an attempt year, in their year-round programming on their websites when they tell the history of their sites the history of the plantations, the history of the mansions. They might mention that, that slaves helped build, them, build the mansions, that they did all the labor. Uh, the, they might mention death rates or even a whipping or two. Uh, they're getting much more realistic 
of about what it was like to be an enslaved person on a southern plantation or an enslaved servant in a southern mansion before the Civil War. So they're getting much more realistic and critical. But the fact is that Christmas programming has mostly lagged behind that, so that although I did find some example of gradual change in Christmas programming, for instance, one place actually talks about a slaveholder who was murdered by his slaves at Christmas. That's part of their Christmas programming, at least this one year, uh, 2015. Uh, although I found that, uh, I don't see a lot of evidence that there's been a major transformation yet in Christmas programming in the South at these sites overall. And I suspect that the main reason simply has to do with the desire to keep these events fun-loving, happy, welcoming, warm events for all visitors so that uh, nothing controversial goes on, nothing that would be deemed offensive by anyone, much safer to play it close to the vest, uh, to continue to obscure slavery. So you may get rid of some of the stereotypical things that you would have had at Christmas celebrations years ago, things like uh, liveried servants, you know, well, well-dressed, doing all the, um, uh, you know, taking of coats as, pe- as guests arrive at the mansion and that kind of thing. You might not see as much of that anymore, but I don't think they're forcing uh, visitors to seriously question the whole idea of celebrating uh, a plantation. Because when you celebrate in a plantation, if you're celebrating its history, and that's why you're there after all, uh, a lot of guests wouldn't go to these places if they didn't have uh, historical significance of one sort or another. Either a famous person lived there uh, or they represented the wealth of the old South, South at its pinnacle or something like that. Uh, if, uh, if you're not uh, uh, inviting people in for Christmas for those kinds of reasons, uh, you're probably not going to get nearly as many guests and uh, your, go- your income is going to be drastically reduced and you may not be able to keep uh, your site up. So they're caught in a dilemma and I think that explains why Christmas programming is lagging behind the programming the rest of the year. Uh, thanks. I mean, we're kind of at the the bottom of the hour here, but if you have a moment, um, maybe we could just ask you one sort of last question uh, that I think picks up some important pieces of how you uh, began the conversation. Um, I should say too, the you have almost like it's like a great something like an ethnography at the end of the book uh, about some of these sites. So if people want to learn more, there's plenty more material in the book about uh, Christmas programming on plantations. But um, yeah, you you said at the beginning that one reason that you were writing the book and, and got invested in this material and, and that sort of thing is uh, that it has a lot to do with how people in the United States uh, memorialize slavery. And you asked a, a kind of rhetorical critical question at the top of the hour about, you know, if we really understood what was going on here, um, we would never want a memento to a society like that, um, whether that's a a monument or or whatever. Um, And you say at the end of your book, uh, serious engagement with the South's real Christmas past is urgent. 
lest we allow misleading stereotypes to linger in the American public uh, imagination much longer. Um, could you maybe just sort of close off this conversation connecting this work that you've done on Christmas and, and slavery and the Civil War uh, to these kind of contemporary uh, conversations that people are having around uh, memorializing um, the South and uh, trying to think through um, you know, what your study sort of reveals about the, the roots of um, racism in the United States that continues today? Right. Well, let me try to tackle that. Um, what I would argue, first of all, is that the, the book uh, tends to bear out the contention that I've made and that, that many other historians have made and that many other uh, uh, advocates or uh, um, uh, position papers have made in recent years that the, the Confederacy and the South revolved around slavery rather than states' rights. That, that slavery is the key to understanding the South and the, the Civil War. And uh, that, that when Southerners went into the Civil War, if they even used the term states' rights, they were using it usually, almost always, to defend their right to own slaves. That is to say, states' rights were the rights of Southern states to retain slavery against the federal government. So I would argue, first of all, that um, my book reinforces the centrality of slavery in the Southern and Confederate experience, and that therefore it also speaks to the whole issue of reparations today, because not only do we need to dismantle I believe, uh, monuments that glamorize the, the Confederate cause, that romanticize the Confederate cause. Uh, and let me just say parenthetically here that I have no problem with a statue of a Confederate soldier somewhere in a cemetery, but I, I do object very strongly to any monument to a Confederate or a Southern leader who helped cause the Civil War. Um, lording over city squares, because to me that almost serves as an endorsement uh, of the uh, the Confederate cause and slavery itself. And and so I have I, I think my book speaks to the need because slavery was so terrible. And this and, and the book is bringing out that even at, at the the very time of the year when slavery was supposedly most humane. Uh, that all these horrible things occurred, that slaves were whipped, that slaves were sold and bought on the market at Christmas, that uh, slaves were humiliated in many different ways, uh, that, that, uh, the, that I, I believe that my, my book underscores the, the need to remove these symbols of, oppre of human oppression from our city squares and like places, uh, not museums, but, but uh, from places uh, of, uh, of, of public veneration. And then similarly, it speaks to the reparations question because uh, you have to really address all the elements of slavery that are usually swept under the rug uh, 
to fully understand why some people would advocate today that reparations are due for this horrible institution. And so um, I think that when you realize that even at the, the time of the year when slaves were given supposedly given presents and long vacations and so on, slavery was still oppressive. And then you ask, what was it like the rest of the year? Uh, you come to the point where you realize that all of America has paid a horrific price for human bondage. And that we're probably never going to have racial reconciliation in America today unless we confront this past honestly and at a very profound level. And I look upon Yuletide and Dixie as a very modest contribution to this debate, but I think it's a very necessary contribution because until we deconstruct the myths that uh, underscore uh, race oppression, we cannot do anything about the, or we can do very little about the oppression itself. Yeah, I mean, you, I think you've put a lot on the table, especially for listeners. And um, as people think through Christmas time, I hope that they'll uh, think through some of this um, dark side of, of that history as well. Uh, challenging stuff, but important um, to keep reminding ourselves that it, it's still uh, with us, as you've been telling us here. Um, thanks so much for, for joining us, too. Uh, readers should definitely check out the book. There's so much more material in there. Yuletide and Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. Uh, it just came out in 2019, so it's fresh. Uh, lots of really um, challenging and, and helpful material, uh, especially that stuff at the end about um, uh, going through the way that uh, all this history kind of continues to tell a story by which we're uh, guided for um, for the worse, I think. Uh, so, yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. And, um, yeah, we'll we'll be on the lookout for what you've got next. Thank you, Matt, and I appreciate your close reading. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, uh, then you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Magnificast. Our intro music is, who is it again, Dean? Uh, the intro music is by Carlos Mejia Godoy, and the song is Navidad and Libertad. It's, a, it's an absolute banger. I love it. <laughs> it's one of those under, undersung Christmas songs that you can learn all this year to bring out in your caroling next Christmas. Just go to the club and get that song going. Hand to the DJ. <laughs> Are there DJs at clubs? I have no idea. Yeah, Christmas clubs. The Christmas DJ. <laughs> All right, see you next week. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, you keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late.